welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Daniel Apke. And he and his brother, Ron, established Apke Land, a firm that specializes in buying and selling vacant lands across several states in the United States. He currently serves as the chief executive officer of the company. He's also founded LandInvestingOnline.com, which is an educational platform that aims at educating people on how to start and run a profitable land flipping business. And also, he's the host of a podcast named The Real Estate Investing Podcast. So be sure to check out that podcast and say hi to him over there. So Daniel, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Daniel. So Daniel, can you share a little bit about your background and how you got started in real estate with us? For sure. So it kind of all stems back to, I always knew I wanted to get into entrepreneurship. I didn't know the route that it would really take me there. I was really bad at school. I had trouble focusing, uh, got really bad grades, always struggled to kind of graduate and go to the next grade type of thing. I just wasn't good at school. I couldn't sit there and listen. And I always knew I wanted to work for myself and to be into entrepreneurship. And right after I graduated from college. I invested in a commercial salon. It was a cheap little salon that would kind of got my feet wet into real estate. And it was just one of those situations where the owner of the building was getting older and they kept dropping the price and they were hiding income for a long time. So it looked like it was cash flow negative and just eating away cash. But after diving in and going in the salon and just asking everyone, you know, how how much they're paying a day in rent, I added up the numbers and realized quickly this place was a cash cow on the side. So I ended up buying that as my first ever real estate investment. And like I said, I always knew I wanted to get into entrepreneurship and real estate. And that was just a good, cheap opportunity to do it. I had a nine to five. So I just went conventional, got a conventional loan on it. And it, it all worked out from there. I still own that building today. Oh, wow. So you start off with a commercial salon right after college. How did you decide that you were going to even start looking at whether or not this opportunity would have been right for you? So I actually had a family friend who was a realtor and he focused on the investment side a lot more. And I had no idea what I was doing back then. And this was my brother and myself. We went in this together and we were actually looking for like duplexes, quads, things like that. And this came up several times because they kept dropping the price and it was listed for like almost a year, I think. So we knew we could get a good price on it. And my realtor actually did bring that to me. So what it is, it's a salon on the bottom floor and it's a apartment on top. And like I said, the numbers looked really bad on paper, but once we went in there and started questioning it and kind of walked it and saw, you know, the structure foundation, everything's good. It's an operating business. We quickly realized it was a really, really good opportunity. It's not like I was searching for salons at all. It's just, I was open. I wanted an investment. I didn't really care what I bought. I knew I just wanted real estate and I wanted to be cash flowing. So kind of just went from there. And then he brought that opportunity to me. So without like having experience within real estate up until this point, did you, or I guess the question is, what did you think about, or were there any concerns about how are we going to operate this property after we take it over? How are we going to learn this business? How did you overcome those types of questions that came up as you were just getting started? 
Yeah, that that was the biggest thing. Is like, how are we gonna? Because <laughs> there was, I think, four stylists that were working out of there. The first step was me actually going there and asking them, like, "Are you going to stay when I buy the building?" And I think two or three of them said yes. And then I did the math, how much they were paying, um, and I figured out, you know, I told them I would come every week to collect a paycheck to collect their check for the week. And it was one of those things that kind of I'm one to figure it out as I go. Honestly, to be transparent, I don't plan things out too much. I knew there's a lot of opportunity here. I knew that two or three of the stylists were staying and I knew that would get me to break even or better at minimal. So I think just the rewards outweighed the risk by far. And I think that's why I was okay going into the unknown. After you took it over, you and your brother, did you have any challenges at takeover when you started operating in it? Or did it seem and work out as smoothly as, you know, the initial planning when you first like looked at the opportunities and talking to the different the people who are working there and the calculations? Did it all kind of work out? I mean, on paper, yes, but there's a lot of gossip and drama that goes along with owning a salon that we weren't going to be aware of. It's an operating business. So there's a lot more of that went into it than we realized. So what we ended up doing after doing it ourselves for about six to 12 months, we ended up just leasing out the space, the whole space to a a business owner. And then she brought her salon in there. So now we're just renting it out to her and she rents out the booths per day. So she's managing the day-to-day and I'm just the landlord at the end of the day. But at first it was really difficult. Like the biggest thing was the gossip and the drama between the stylist is like, it just got to be a lot and it weighs down on you. And I didn't realize I was walking into that at the time. It ended up working out, but there's just so much, uh, like people would come and leave all the time. And then all the stylists would kind of call me when there's an issues coming up. And we definitely didn't have our systems planned out at that point. So there's a lot, it was not smooth at all, but it ended up working out. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Like the numbers are the numbers. When you deep dive into it, the numbers right. don't change. They don't lie if you really look at it and do your due diligence on it. But the challenging part of it is, and the unknown unknowns are the people aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we had to kind of overcome. And that's why we went throughout we did and just ran out the whole thing. It's a definitely lower profit. It's still a really, really well cash flowing property. But it's not like if you own and operate a salon and you're collecting the booth rent daily, it can be pretty lucrative if you do it right. It just comes with the expense of a lot of time and drama and all that stuff. So after you said that you found a business owner who just leased out the entire space from you and your brother, what happened afterwards? Did you continue on investing in other salons or did you start to venture in other different asset classes within real estate? So I went to, I don't own any more salons. I do own some multifamily units and some single family and duplex and a quad also. So I did stick to real estate. If a salon opportunity came up, if the numbers made sense, buy it in a heartbeat. I like the business. I think we always have been able to rent it out very easily. So it's not like I'm actively necessarily looking for salons, but I've bought in other asset classes like single family homes, multifamilies, duplexes, quads, things like that which kind of led me to where I'm at today. I actually, primarily, I do still buy real estate rentals on the side, but primarily right now, my asset class is land and land investing. How did you get into land investing? So I actually owned, I've owned about 12 different businesses. And one of those was an e-commerce. It was an electric bike company. And I knew I was planning to sell that. And I had an investor out in California who was buying that from me. And during that time, the process of selling it, I was networking with other e-commerce professionals in the country. And one of the guys showed me 
land flipping and land investing. So I hopped on a call with him. He kind of gave me the rundown. I really like real estate. I really like being able to do things remote. And he showed me what land flipping was all about. So after that, I really just dove in it. And I knew I was going to look for something more full-time to take a... You know, I was selling my business. I needed something else to put my focus onto. So I was open at the time. And I saw the sustainability of it. I saw the value it brings to the world, it brings the sellers a lot of value, and it brings the future buyers a lot of value. And I really like the sustainability aspect because when you talk about land, like it's not someone's house. It's not a necessity to live. It's an extra asset that people have. So when they need to liquidate and get money, we offer that solution. Like it's a quick way to close cash and get out of their land and fill whatever needs they have. So for you, Daniel, like what do you do to start looking at land opportunities in terms of the markets and where you're looking to buy land? So we have a whole county. I usually choose like a metro area to focus on. So say it's Cincinnati, Ohio, that's where I'm from. Say I want to go in Southwest Ohio, Cincinnati area. I'll usually go one, two, three counties removed because we're focused more on rural land. The opportunities for five, 10, 20, 50 acre properties in metro areas is rare. We like bigger lots that are a couple counties removed, maybe 30 minutes, an hour, hour and a half, two hours away from an urban area. And that's kind of where we start. And then we run some reports and just see like how hot the market is, really compare like how much land is for sale, how much is sold, what are the average days on markets, things like that. And we run a test, we call it the county selection test. And it pretty much spits it out if it's a good county or not a good county by showing, okay, are the days on market low? Is it high? Is it in the middle? Are there way too many things for sale? You're never going to be able to sell a property when there's 200 other similar properties for sale in that area. So testing things like that. And then what we do is we pretty much extract the data. Once we figure out where, we extract all the data. So we use data tree and we'll just type anything from two to 10 acres in Hamilton County, Ohio, that's vacant land. And it will spit out all those records for us. So that's kind of how we get the process started. Got it. Okay. So once you've identified the county and you evaluate the property or the land that you're looking to purchase, how are you going about financing the land opportunities? Yeah. So what we do actually is send out, we've sent out blind offers. So we're actually sending, you know, a piece of mail in the mail to you that says, Hey, I want to buy your five acres for $50,000. And we do it usually 35 to 50% of what it's worth. It just depends the area. And then what happens is when you get these under contract, the land community is pretty tight knit. We call them deal funders. There's a lot of deal funders in land who pay a hundred percent of the capital up front, and then you come up with a profit split. I'd say that's about 90% of what the community, the land investors are doing. They're using other people's money in the land world because what happens in land is it's fairly lucrative. So once you do it for 12, 18 months and you're turning your cash and you're turning your land and you start paying for your own deals, then you have some extra money in the bank. You know land so well, you want to start putting your money to work and you actually start seeking out other people's deals. So Like we fund a lot of other people's deals. We also have some of our deals that are being funded by other deal funders. And it's a community of land investors. That's how we get the cash to do it. We're going to leverage the fact that we know land better than anyone else. So you can take a profit split. The risk is higher, but you know, we know land so well, we're okay with that risk. We know what it's going to turn into. We can analyze the land really, really well. So when you put out offers for 30 to 40%, I think you said, of what the land they're asking for. How are you doing the negotiations on that to be able to get that type of um, or get that type of offer accepted? Yeah. So we only acquire for every 2000 pieces of mail that we send out with an offer from 30 to 45%, we get one deal back. So it's a numbers game. 
and the numbers make sense. Our average profit's over $20,000, but it's a lot of mail to get one deal. And that's just how it is. So we send out mass quantities of mail to get these deals. And what happens is these people, we have a phone number on our offer and everything like that. So they call back, it goes to uh, like, we have a call center answering and they just ask basic questions. Like, are you interested in selling your land? Yes or no. Are you interested in moving forward with the current offer you have, yes or no. And they'll take notes, basic notes like that. And then my sales team and myself will call them back and start the negotiations. A lot of times they want to sell at that price. Sometimes they want $10,000 more, whatever that is. So we have a negotiation process as well. I'd say it's about 50-50. 50% of the people who we buy from have negotiation, like we negotiated with them a little bit and 50% just are cool with moving forward with it, what it's at. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. So once you send, because 2,000 mailers are quite a lot, so... When you're sending out these mailers, how often are you sending it back to the people you've already contacted once, but maybe haven't heard anything back from them? Yeah. So we can put it in like a funnel. There's different ways and different opinions on this. And a lot of times we can follow up with text, which is more affordable. You can also follow up with mail within six months. We don't send them back to back because like you said, it's expensive. But if we get a couple of deals back, say in Hamilton County, Ohio, and we sold that five acres we bought for $25,000. We sell it for $60,000 really quick. We saw the market's hot. We know exactly what five acres is going to sell for in that area. We'll continue to retarget that area because we'll get data points to support our price. And then the risk goes down when you have maybe you sold three to five things in Hamilton County, Ohio, all at the same acreage very quickly. You know that land's going to sell there for a certain price. So then we continue to remail, continue to text. We even do some cold calling now and things like that. And can you kind of give us a broad picture of, you know, the process that you've put into place in terms of contacting, sending out the mailers, contacting the people who are potentially interested in working with you guys. What's the time frame of that all looks like? Like from when you put out that first flyer to when you potentially can hear back from a couple of different potentially interested parties to when you actually close. Yeah. So when they actually get the mail, so we send out the mail when they get it, it's usually one to two weeks after it goes USPS just regular envelope. And then they'll start calling them within two weeks. We call them purchase agreements. So we send them a purchase agreement. You'll see purchase agreements start popping up about two weeks after. And then from there, we do due diligence on it, make sure we're buying what we think we're buying. It's not in a wetland. It's not on a crazy mountain slope that you can't put anything on. So we'll do some due diligence. And then we actually send it to title and title takes another, you know, on average about two weeks for land. So talking about a month to, I'd say one to two months to actually close on the buy side. Correct me if I'm wrong or did I mishear this, but do you send the purchase agreements along with the mailers? Yes. So the mailer actually has a purchase agreement to it. It's a blind offer. 
So the first page, it's two pages. So the first page is an explanation of what we do, you know, sell the family owned business, things like that. And the second page is an actual parcel number, acreage, legal description, all that stuff. And then offer price and then the actual contract to sign. Got it. So you are, so you and your team, what you do is you take a look at each individual properties and you're making customized offers based off of their land. How do you set that system all up to make it more efficient and like more automated? Yeah, it's very automated. Like we're not going to go through each property. We're, sending, <laughs> yeah. we're not going to go through 5,000 pieces of properties to send them out. So pretty much say we take a county like Hamilton County, Ohio, and the price of land could be very similar from top to bottom in that county. This isn't like urban areas where you go from 45212 zip code to 45215 and they're a mile away from each other, but one's double the price. It's not like that with rural land for the most part. So you can split up pricing by location in the county, which we do most of the time, but we're talking about like, we might split it up a whole county, two, three, four different areas. So they're pretty bulk. So we'll have anything, let's say from four to six acres, all priced the same price per acre. So maybe four to six acres is about $5,000 price per acre. And then six to 10 might be a little bit lower than that. Maybe it's like $4,200 because you're starting to buy in bulk. And then 10 to 20 in that same area might be $3,600 because you're even buying more. And then 20 to 50 might even be like even less than that. So we price by mass amounts. So we're looking at a whole area and pricing the area the same. And then really just focus on, because you have price breakdowns on the different sizes. Obviously a hundred acre property, it's going to be a lot less price per acre than a five acre property just because you're buying in bulk. Okay, got it. So in their purchase agreements, you're putting in there the price per acre that you're looking to purchase it for. Well, we'll put the actual price. It's just connected in Excel. So we'll just have, okay, their acre is 4.6 acre, or they have a five acre property. We're offering $5,000 per acre. So do the quick math and it's just, it's a mail merge. So we just connect to our Excel form. And we have a whole process for this. It sounds a lot more complicated than it is, but then it would say $25,000 on their purchase agreement. And that's what we actually use to send a title when we have it under contract. How did you figure out what worked for you in terms of this system? It's a lot of trial and error. So I have an educational company that teaches this kind of stuff. And then I actually have my investment firm that learns this type of stuff. It was a lot of upfront work on my investment firm to learn this and to figure out how to price the most efficiently. And we're still testing things out. Like we don't have it perfect. We do know like the ratio, the efficiency of mail with these blind offers on them is extremely effective. And we're trying texting, we're trying all kinds of things, but the mail, someone just getting a purchase agreement in the mail is there's something very effective about it. They hang it on their fridge. It stays on their coffee table. It goes in their drawer. They pull it out three months later when they need the money, whatever happens. So we do experiment with a lot and it's taken us a lot to get to this point, but blind offers for land, since land is pretty, it's much more simple than a structure. It's not like you need to figure out what the HVAC year is and all this different stuff with the land or figure out what shape condition the house is in. It's land. So you can price pretty effectively bulk. So what happens after you get the land under contract? Are you selling it? Are you putting it back under contracting and wholesaling it out? Or are you holding it for another buyer? Like what's your business plan after you actually get it under contract? Under contract. Yeah. So we do the due diligence and then we actually buy the land. It gives us a lot of flexibility. We've tried to wholesale it quite a bit. This is rural America. So like a lot of our end buyers are consumers. They're the people that are going to build on the house. They're not like a investment from buying it and, you know, buying a house for an investment like wholesalers do in urban areas. So 
That being said, that buying it gives us the flexibility. We put it on the MLS, we put it on land.com. We sometimes use realtors on the sell side. We get really good drone photos, really good pictures, and we just put it on the market and sell it. And that's what we are. We're a marketing company. We're taking someone who needed that money, closing them quick, providing that value on the front side. Then we're taking that five acres and putting up for sale for someone who, you know, that's their dream home. That's their future recreational land, whatever they see that is. That's the value we're providing them. Got it. So if you don't mind me asking, you don't have to give me like perfect exact numbers, but maybe just like a top level overview of what it kind of looks like. Once you, you know, you put those mailers out and you're offering at 30 to 45% below what they're asking for. And then what is a typical like return structure for you after that? So typically like our average, I was just looking at these numbers on our end year 2020 report. So our average was about buy for $30,000 and sell for about 65 on average. So we're typically around doubling our money. That's what we like to see the numbers at, especially if you have profit splits with the deal funder. It might seem like a really good return. It is a really good return, but you need money for both parties if you're not paying for it also. So typically a little over 100% return on investment is what we're seeing on average. Now we will do some deals like for buying for $500,000, we're not always going to sell for 1.1 mil like those numbers play out. Sometimes we'll be okay if we can sell a quick 7, 8, 850. So the higher we go, the less returns we can take. But on average, we are about buy for 30, sell for 65. And what is a time frame typically once you have it under contract and then you're looking for the end buyer, do you find um, someone to take it, uh, to sell it back over to? Yeah. So that whole process is usually four to six months. So that's from sending out the mail. So you send out the mail, buy it, list it for sale. And our average time on market is usually about three to four weeks. And then title on the sell side and all that is what takes the most amount of time. We've noticed, especially if you have financing contingencies, things like that, perk test contingencies. So the whole process, typically four to six months to actually turn it. Some in three, if you can do it fairly quickly, but on average about four or five months. Okay. So then have you guys ever had a situation where the land just sat there and there wasn't a buyer for you guys? It stayed on the market for longer than the three to four weeks. Yes, absolutely. That happens. And it comes down to like, one, you have to keep dropping the price. That's why we like to buy really under market value. So we can sell at, we like to undercut the market. We're not listing a hundred percent of what we think it's worth. We typically sell quick because we're putting it up for 90%. But when that happens and it sits, hopefully you have the margins in there to where you can keep dropping it. And that's what we like to do. We drop until we sell. That's my business model. I like to turn to inventory. And for sure, we've had things sit over six months on the market. And typically we can look back at those that it did and figure out why. Like the two times that I'm thinking of, the ones that sat, one was on a crazy, crazy slope. It was on a river, so we bought it. But the slope was so, so significant that it just took a really specific buyer, someone who was willing to put in the money and footers to build their future home on. And the others were in really strict HOAs where it looked like it was really nice, million dollar houses. But there's so many restrictions on them that there's only such a small amount of people that could afford a 3,400 square foot house, things like that. So it for sure happens. It's going to happen. We've never lost money on a deal, fortunately, because the margins are there, but things have sat for over six months for sure. And when you're getting started in land, just out of curiosity also, like what was your biggest challenge getting set up, especially going into a new asset class like this? Biggest challenge was just the unknown. I think such small amount of people doing it, you don't really know what's working, what's not working. And on top of it, we're trying to trust the system where we're sending mail. Mail's expensive. It's 30 something cents a stamp plus the envelope. So the biggest expense, just trusting the process and being able to trust 
what you're doing because it can get expensive when you talk about envelopes and stamps and all that. So just staying consistent and believing was the hardest thing for me. And so when people are also hearing that you're buying land for 30K and selling it for like 60K, you know, we'll start turning, right? And you're thinking like, oh, this is a really good business model. But are there any cons to actually investing in land that people should be, you know, as they're looking to dive into something like this that they should be aware of? Yeah. I mean, you got to do your due diligence. Like we do a lot of homework. We know a lot about the property. We don't just get a property back for 30,000, send it to title immediately. We do a lot of due diligence on it. We make sure there's no restrictions. We're reading through the deed, making sure there's no easement going through the middle, things like that. Going through the deeds, making sure it's not in a wetland on a slope. Like I said, we get pictures of all the land. So we know what we're buying because the time, the risk lies with what you don't know about the land. So if you can eliminate all those factors, it's an extremely lucrative business. But we see some people rushing into it, trying to force deals, not doing their homework and due diligence. And those people will get burned eventually. Like it might've worked out your first five, 10 deals, but do 50 deals. Like you're going to have a deal where you're just not going to be able to sell. And that's where the risk is just not people rushing through the process and not doing their due diligence on what they're buying. And so what's next for you, Daniel? I'm trying to build, like, I truly think that land flipping and land investing should be up there with house flipping. Like in terms of the opportunities out there, I want to spread the word of land flipping. I see the potential. I see where it's going. I see like, I always think of it. I would love to know about land flipping when I was 18, 19, 20 years old. I would have loved that, but it took me 12 businesses to get here. So I like to teach my past self what I would have loved to know. And that's what I want to do. I want to continue to spread the word. I'm working on a book right now. Uh, a lot of cool things coming. So I really want to spread the word. And how has real estate investing impacted your life? I mean, it's brought me an immense amount of freedom. I mean, I'm in an Airbnb right now. I'm not on anyone's schedule. I'm fortunately very financially free. You know, I can invest in things that I love. I started this educational program without batting an eye at the investment. It's just the freedom aspect of it. I love the freedom that real estate can bring. And then what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? The grit, honestly, like you have to be able to take risk. There's some people that try to get everything perfect and you know, analysis paralysis. They try to get everything perfect before you have to be willing to say, okay, and let it rip when you're 80% sure. Like there's going to be unknowns. You're never going to be perfect. You will make mistakes. The people that succeed are the fearless people who just let it rip and just be okay with everything not being perfect. I think there's too many people that overanalyze, I think. And Daniel, where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing? So my website's landinvestingonline.com. And if you follow me or message me on Instagram, it's at Daniel Apke, A-P-K-E. You can direct message me. I love helping people out. Any question at all, real estate, real estate investments, rentals, land, whatever it is, I'd love to help. Awesome. Thank you so much for all of your time, Daniel. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sale and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. 
Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifacecapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.